Welcome to Fresh Cut Grass, light conversation with turf grass professionals from across the turf industry, with your hosts, Jeff Fowler and Tanner DelVal. Hello and welcome to this episode of Fresh Cut Grass. My name is Jeff Fowler, one of your co-hosts. With me this week, last week, next week, and every week, Tanner DelVal. Tanner, good to have you. Good to be here. What's going on? What's new? Uh, throngs of summer as we record this. Um, crazy, crazy dry. Um, I was up in the Williamsport area the, over the weekend, um, swung through the Little League complex, and other than the stadium fields, it's dry. It's been, very. They've been, prob- they've been probably a month without measurable water, um, and things are um, so you know disease and all those things we don't we're not seeing because everything's dormant and brown and and gone. But um, hopefully we get a little rain and you know things start to come back. Um, you know I saw one this morning as I was letting my dog out. Um, I saw my first, um, not my first ever, but my first this year was a baby praying mantis um so they had they've obviously hatched and it was just probably an inch inch and a half long um but it was um perched on the on the um back door of the house as i let the dog out at five o'clock this morning so um pretty cool thing to see yeah how about you what do you how about you what do you've got just same thing everything i'm seeing is just super dry people are sending Sending pictures, asking what's wrong with their lawn, what disease it is, and nine times out of ten, it's just dry. And it's hard to keep up with watering. You know, there's no substitute for natural rain. And it's really hard to, if your lawn or field is starting to experience drought symptoms, you almost can't bring it back. Um, It's hard to get back ahead of it. Yeah, it's so especially when you have temperatures, you know, over 90. I mean, this is like, I don't know how many days this year. Uh, we've had over 90, but it looks like it's got to be over 10 at this point. And a lot of it's been in the last two, three weeks. Yeah. yeah. So, um, Tanner, this week's guest is um, one of our good co-workers who's agreed to come on the show with us. Um, you know, we we had her at a conference and had her speak on this topic and kind of resonated with both of us so we decided that we were going to turn it into um an episode here on fresh cut grass um and it's not one that most people would think of um we're not going to talk about turf we're not going to talk about turf diseases we're not going to talk about water we're going to talk about the people that are listening um we're going to talk about protecting you know each of the each of our listeners from tick-borne illnesses or tick-borne sicknesses um lots and lots of things transmitted by ticks and and the mosquitoes and other biting stinging insects um so we brought on our ace in the hole amy corman amy is um a penn state extension educator based in lehigh county which for those of you that um, are not in pennsylvania it's on the far east side um of pennsylvania almost to new jersey and just north of philadelphia um by about an hour so amy welcome to the show hey good afternoon jeff and tanner glad to join you today so amy why don't you go ahead and introduce our listener introduce yourself to um our listeners other than what i just told them because you have a an interesting background before you came to us here at penn state Okay, I can do that. So I'm currently uh, part of the commercial horticulture team supporting the green industry. But before I joined Penn State Extension, I spent almost a quarter of a century as um, as an entomologist in the Army. And so what does an entomologist in the Army do? Well, we try to protect all of our troops from uh, vector-borne diseases, as well as do a number of other um, uh, pest management type activities. So and I, then include tick-borne diseases. 
Yeah. So when I first met you, um, I knew you had been in the service, but I did not realize or that you had spent time um, in the armed services, but I did not realize that you had been there for that many years as an entomologist. Um, so um, it's, I think it's really cool. And I guess something that I just never thought of, I'm not, um, I, I, I haven't served in the military, so I just never think of that stuff. I know Tanner, you have, um, so it may be pop into your head, but I just never thought about, I guess they need somebody to protect, um, protect or, or do research and, and do that in the, in the armed services as well. So I'll say, Amy, thanks for your years of service. And I like the way you say a, almost a quarter century, not the number of years. I know. And you find that hard to believe, right? Because I look like I'm only 25. <laughs> yeah. And you started in the service when you were two, right? Yeah. Right. I'm glad. So, um, yeah, the, the talk we had um, was at a, at a field day, and I've listened to a lot of, of TikToks, um, not TikTok, but Tick, T-I-C-K, the, the little biting insect talks um, over my years in extension. Um, and I told Amy when she was done, it was probably the most informative one that I've ever listened to because she really got into um you know, what they do, how they work. Um, the, the part that fascinated me, Tanner, and I, I guess I had never thought about it, is that um, an, a tick that infects me with a, a disease, um, typically um, Lyme's disease is the one that everybody thinks of right away, um, that it, it has to be a three-bite insect. Um, am I wrong, Amy? Well, no, you're, you're, you're right, Jeff. But, um... This is for ticks um, that spread um, the pathogen that causes Lyme disease, which is a, which is a, a bacteria. Um, we call this particular tick, it's, its fancy name is Ixodes scapularis, but we know it mostly commonly as the black-legged tick. And um, this particular tick, its life cycle takes about two years. And just because of its developmental patterns and everything, we call it a three-host tick because each part of its life stages after it hatches out of the egg, it bites a different host before, um, before it molts into the next stage. So yeah, three-host tick. And the reason I bring that up is, um, and I don't want to make light of it, I guess. I don't want to lessen the um a tick bite um but not every tick that bites you is going to give you Lyme's disease obviously um has to be a third bite it, it, right i mean in the in the way i understood the explanation is it has to be an adult that would give me Lyme's disease oh actually no it doesn't have to be an adult this life stage that's most important is probably the nymphal life stage just, well, why do you ask? Why do you say that, Amy? Well, let me explain. <laughs> so, first of all, for Lyme, and we'll just use this particular um, tick and this particular pathogen, Borrelia, um, as the example. First of all, the little creature has to hatch from the egg, right? And it hatches from the egg and it doesn't have any pathogens in it right now. And it's got to go find lunch. So, that means that little larvae. So a larval tick, unlike the nymphal tick and the adult tick, only has six legs. So that little baby tick has to go, and it's probably going to feed on some little small rodent like a white-footed mouse. And that is the prime, that's one of the primary reservoirs for um, uh, Borrelia um, in Pennsylvania. So that tick has to go get lunch. And after that tick has lunch, if it fed on an, a mouse that has the pathogen, then the tick may develop the pathogen. So that, that, that if it fed on you, which is unlikely, larval ticks are not generally going after large males, um, it wouldn't have a pathogen in it. So that tick feeds and then it drops off and um, later on it will molt into a nymphal tick. And so the nymphal tick is now and has an infestation of pathogens in it, right? And so that goes off to find lunch somewhere, 
which may be some other small or medium-sized mammal or whatever, or a person. And so, um, so when it bites, it may transmit that pathogen. And the reason why the nymphs are really um, the sneaky stage is because they are so small that you might miss them versus an adult tick, you would probably see it um, and, and know that it was attached um, versus, you know, a nymphal tick can feed and, and then leave and you might not, you know, be aware that you were just lunch for a little tick. So that's why the nymphals stage for this particular tick is the, is the challenging one. Tanner, I just want to clear the air. I knew that. I just was setting up Amy for what she just told us. I heard this. I I did listen earlier this week when I heard. No, I'm, I'm sure. I, I, I'm getting that vibe for sure. <laughs> what a what what um, Amy? What do we what what other um? So Lyme, we know is um a a big um a big concern, a big um, worry for people that work outside. Um, you know, because we're exposed to um, grassy areas, um, we're exposed to um, areas that, you know, forested areas, landscapes where, where ticks um, like to hang out. Um, what, other, what other pathogens other than Lyme, and that's the one that most people know, um, what other things do we have to, I guess, watch out for, think about? I mean, it's not just Lyme. Um, what what other what what else do we need to to um, consider or be thinking True. about? It's not just Lyme, and it's not just us, but it's our it's our our families and our pets and our livestock that are all potentially at risk from tick-borne diseases based on where we hang out, where maybe where we recreate, hiking, and all those other kind of things, or um, perhaps in some cases where people work and hunters too, of course, when they go out, they're always at risk. Okay. Let me get my list here for you. So Lyme. Yes. Pennsylvania is the, one of the big hot States for Lyme. Um, in, uh, what, for, yeah. What, what other States, because we have listeners all over the world. Where uh, most, mostly, I don't, I don't remember the big long list, but it's mostly States in the, in the Northeast. So we're hot for Lyme. I don't have the numbers for this year. In 2019, we were number five, according to the CDC's records. But there's also a number of other bacteria that are transmitted by um, ticks um, that can cause disease in people. Um, anaplasmosis is one of those diseases um, that is uh, caused by um, a a tick of the genus Anaplasma. Um, there's also um, Ehrlichiosis. That's another bacteria, um, bacterial disease, um, spotted fever, rickettsiosis. And there are also, uh, there's, a, there's a parasite um, that causes a disease called Babesiosis that's transmitted by tick bite. And then there's also viruses like Powassan virus is also transmitted by tick bite. These aren't all transmitted by all ticks all the time, but that's just your broad selection of different things lurking out there in the environment um, uh, that can have a negative impact on a close encounter. So if you get, if you, you find a tick on you, um, obviously you, you don't know if the only way I assume that you will know if it has Lyme is for it to get tested. And I, to my knowledge, there were some agencies doing that testing, maybe out of fee. Is that correct? Um, yeah, there's there are. And um, sorry, I can't remember all of them. Um, but they're out there. But the, but they're out there. Yes. Yeah. And but um, so if you see a tick on you, well, first thing you would like, you would remove it. Right. You might want to keep it handy and send it off to um, there's there's one at um, East Stroudsburg. Uh, they have a, a, a tick lab. I think I think they're still taking samples. Um, 
um, and there are other places as well. Um, but um, you may wish to have that tick sampled or not. Um, but I think the most important thing is to just be aware that you had a tick bite. And if one starts to, for Lyme, see a bullseye mark, that doesn't happen all the time. Um, many people who get Lyme never had a bullseye, but that's one indicator. Or if one begins to experience some, some um, illness or something that they can attribute in association with getting that tick bite, yeah, go see your medical provider. And you might want to hang on to the tick. <clears throat> so, Amy, how about um, how do I remove that tick? I've heard a million different ways to remove ticks, you know, out of uh, let's just say I found one in my leg or my leg. How how do I go about getting that? I mean, I just grab a hold of it and throw it in the garbage or throw it in a vial to keep it. Um, I've heard all about mouth parts and everything else, heads still being buried and kind of disgusting to those of us that don't like insects. But um, help me out. So it's their mouth parts that are embedded in your skin, not their head. Although mouth parts are, you know, kind part, of part of that of front structure there. But so you want to get a pair of tweezers and carefully tease the mouth parts out from your skin. You don't want to use a light a match and use a burn match to try to make it move. That's not going to work. You don't want to smear it with Vaseline or toothpaste or any one of a number of, of um, strange remedies for removing ticks. You certainly don't want to smash the tick. And the reason why you want to carefully um, pull it out of the skin is because that tick is feeding and the tick is, is pushing saliva into you. And along with the saliva are the, are the um, pathogens. And so you don't want to smash it so that it's pushing stuff into you. You want to carefully pull it out um, in order to get everything, the whole mouth parts and everything out. So while you were while you were just talking there, I did pull up <clears throat> the uh, East Stroudsburg Tick Lab. And in Pennsylvania, it is free to Pennsylvania residents to get a tick tested for a basic panel, which does include uh, Lyme disease. For non-residents, I'm sure there's other testing sites in other states, but uh, for non-residents to use that lab, it's $50. But for Pennsylvania residents, uh, a basic panel is free. Now, they do have, it looks like, advanced and comprehensive panels that look at a whole bunch of other stuff and they evaluate it for, and there's fees associated with that. So just wanted to put that out there. Thanks, Tanner. I just can't remember all the details anymore. Yeah, I didn't either, but I knew that there was a lab. But yeah, so it's actually free to Pennsylvania residents. So that's nice. Um, so if you have a tick on you, and I mean, I've had them. I mean, I'm in the outdoors all the time. It seems like probably just about anyone that works outside to any degree at some point has had a tick on them, whether it has embedded themselves inside or not. That's a different question. Um, I've uh, knock on wood, I've only found one in me one time, and it was only in for probably an hour, maybe. And I guess my question is, um, you know, for, for you is, is there an amount of time? I mean, you hear different people say, oh, it's got to be feeding for 24 hours. But I feel like I, I've heard that that's not true. Well, okay, this is an arthropod. And I always say when we're talking about arthropods, it depends. <laughs> and so this is a real good, it depends answer. It depends on both the species of tick, and it depends upon the pathogen that the tick is transmitting. So for instance, for um, uh, Borrelia, the, the causative agent of um, Lyme disease, we generally say the tick has to feed for 24 to 48 hours. Now, that, that's just the general overview, 20, 24 to 48 hours for that tick uh, to transmit uh, an infective dose of pathogen. On the other hand, for Powassan virus, 15 minutes. So it, it, it's an it depends answer. So I wish there was a simple answer, but, but there's not. That Powassan virus. So what are like symptoms of that? You know, it's not something we hear a lot about. Um, I, I don't know all the symptoms. 
you're 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 going beyond what I know right here. No, but... no problem. I was I was just curious. Like you don't hear much about it. I I'm assuming it's not deadly. I mean, if it's not. Oh something... no, it can be. Oh really? Uh, yes, okay. it can be. Um, so Powassan fever virus. Uh, it would. Let me back up a little bit. Um, it is known to. Let me pull over. I had some notes on that one. Um, this this uh, particular pathogen has been noted in um, multiple counties in Pennsylvania in tick studies. Uh, so it's sort of one of those things to be on the lookout for. Um, uh, certainly in in some places it has had, you know, it, it can be uh, very devastating to an individual that gets it. Uh, but I'm sorry, I don't have I don't have all the list of symptoms here. Sure. Can... Now, someone, you know, so they're getting these ticks are getting that bacteria from another animal that mm -hmm. has it in them. So mm -hmm. theoretically, a person could be a carrier. And if a tick were to be on you and then release, can it feed on another human? So for for many of these pathogens, humans are dead end hosts. Okay. You know, we, we might get and I'm just speaking in the big, broad world of um, of of zoonotic diseases that we acquire from other animals where we can get sick, like West Nile virus that comes from mosquitoes. We'll get sick from it, but we're not part of the transmission cycle for another mosquito to feed on that, uh, to feed on us, to pass it on to someone else. And the same goes true for um, some of these uh, tick-borne pathogens as well. While we can get really sick from them, um, that doesn't necessarily, we're not transmitting again. So, um, so let's say a nymph feeds on a nymph feeds on me and um, transmits um, virus to me or a pathogen to me. Well, then the nymph drops off and then it molts into an adult stage later on. Now that adult stage is, is infected with the same pathogens that infected the nymph. Um, but that adult is then going to go and feed on another organism could be a could be a human or um, some other some other mammal, um, and it uh, it may or may not um, affect that animal. Like the ticks, normally we see them on white-tailed deer all the time, but the deer are really not carriers of Lyme. They don't get sick from it. They're not carriers of it. They're not part of the reservoir, but they certainly do carry an awful lot of ticks around. Does that make does that does it make sense then? It does. So what Absolutely. animal, I guess, is like the primary carrier? The reservoir. That's where the so it's small mammals like white white footed mouse. Okay. For um for Borrelia and and robins, you know, so small rodents and some birds um can serve as a reservoir, at least in terms of um lime. I don't know what it is for all the I would assume it's pretty much the same for many of the other ones. Hmm. And how long, I guess, I wonder how long, if you get Lyme, like how long does that stay in your body? I don't know. That's a good question. Where, yeah. Where's our, where's our medical advice? I was going to yeah. say, we need Tanner, we need to redo this episode and we'll get a medical doctor and Amy on here. <laughs> and man, that would be a, that would be a knockout, wouldn't it? <laughs> <clears throat> I happen to know one of those. So, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I don't have the, I don't have all the details on the, on the um, manifestation there, there, of the illness. There are a lot of, there are a lot of people um, that we run into in our business, being in the turf business that have been affected by Lyme's disease. Um, um I yep. have brothers, I have friends, I have coworkers. I, there's just a lot of people that have been affected by Lyme. Um, most of them, as we've said very eloquently, 
spend a lot of time outdoors, not only with work, but also with play. They like to hunt. They like to be outside hiking. Um, and it, it's just um, the, the, the infection rate seems to be going up and up and up and up. And that just makes logical sense listening to what you're saying about it. So let's, let's change gears just a little bit. How do I protect myself? How do I, how do I, um, if I'm outside, let's just assume I'm a landscaper outside mowing grass on a, you know, an everyday basis. Um, how should I be protecting myself from, and I'm not even going to say from Lyme, but from tick-borne, you know, from tick bites, um, from, you know, those kind of infections that potentially could cause all kinds of issues. Sure. There's a number of things you can do. Number one, when you come in from the outside, take shower, you know, because if you have ticks on you, they may be still walking around trying to figure out where the best place is to have lunch. So take a shower and that will help to wash any any ticks off your body and check yourself to make sure that you don't have any ticks crawling around on your body. Wasn't there um, a country really singer? Important. Wasn't there a country singer that had a hit that said something about checking for ticks? Um, oh, I don't come know. Come on, there was a country singer that <laughs> checked. He had a great hit on "Check Me for Ticks." Luke Bryan. Yes, thank you, Panner. Way to be. <laughs> All right. Well, then that's a good hit. Check for ticks. <laughs> Check for ticks. Um, so that's what you can do after the fact, right? But before the fact, uh, when you're outside, you know, like be be aware of your surroundings. And if you're in, in a place that puts you at risk, I would recommend wearing um, uh, long sleeve shirts, long pants. Um, you can... Um, where clothing treated with um, pesticides, there are available or you can do it yourself um, and um, use repellents on exposed skin to uh, keep the ticks from, from a meal. And what kind of, what kind of um, on my skin, what am I, what am I, I mean, am I just uh, using some, fancy smelling stuff that um, the ticks go, oh, I don't like the smell of Fowler. Let's move on to somebody else. Or what, 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 what are we looking for any particular ingredients in our, in our bug spray or an insecticide spray? What are we? When someone asks me what they should use, I always recommend that they go to CDC's recommendations for repellents. There's a lot of different stuff out there. But um, the CDC has a list of, of um, six um, active ingredients that have been tested and examined and their products are all um, registered by the Environmental Protection Agency. Um, and these are, and have the list in front of me, DEET, that's still the gold standard of insect repellents, picaridin, um, a product called, it's not the product's name, but it's an active ingredient called IR3535. Oil of lemon eucalyptus that's abbreviated as OLE. Uh, paramethangdiol, PMD, and two undecanone. Now of those, the ones that you are going to walk into your grocery store or your local pharmacy or something and see on the, the countertop, you're always probably going to see DEET, picaridin, um, oil of lemon, eucalyptus, and paramethindiol products. Those are the, at least in my area, those are the four most common active ingredients that are easily available um, in local store shelves. But those have all been evaluated. They're, in, they're very effective at um, repelling ticks and other biting arthropods. So those materials that are repellents, they're, or again, I guess you have to check the label of what it says. They're typically applied to your own skin or to your clothing. So these, this list that I just gave you, these are repellents that we would apply to our skin. 
Although um, I'm sure everyone's familiar and they come in different formulations, aerosol sprays and towelettes and creams and lotions and um, liquids. So, and some I've seen cans of aerosol sprays with DEET in them that they say you can spray it on your skin and on your, on your clothing. Um, but for just treating your clothing, uh, that's um, permethrin is, is used as a, as a clothing treatment, but it's not just, it's not the same permethrin that you're going to buy to do some kind of insect treatment somewhere. This is, this is a specially formulated um, in order to treat clothing and you can buy clothing that's already been pre-treated from the manufacturer that has um, permethrin in there. And it's made so that it's not the first time you wash it, it's going to wash out. No, it has some persistence in there. Yeah. I, I treat uh, my hunting clothing with it typically um, every fall. And I think it says on the label, there's a certain amount of time that mm -hmm. it lasts. And then I think it's also a certain number of wash cycles. Correct. So, and I guess I, I'm not familiar. Do those materials that you're treating your clothing with like if a tick gets on it, do they die or do they, is it almost like a repellent as well? And they, they just want to fall off. Well, <clears throat> that's a very good question. And I don't have the best answer for you. So those are insecticides that permethrin, you know, we, we see it all the time as an active ingredient on other things. That's an insecticide and that kills insects, but it may also, an insect may not be inclined to go there. <clears throat> and I, I don't have any good, I don't have any good uh, studies to rely on to, to go into great detail. Well, I'm sure it's like, like anything though, it's probably dose dependent. You know, mm -hmm. if it's been freshly treated, you probably have a better chance of them actually dying. And the other, the other thing, I mean, if I see one on me, on my clothing, I mean, believe me, I have had clothing treated with it and I still have gotten ticks on me. Um, I mean, typically- so you know, they can crawl around on it like many other things. They have to get the, the dose that's going to kill them. But I think it's more if you use repellent, have treated clothing and um, uh, and and wear your clothing so that you don't have a whole lot of exposed skin. You're doing everything that you can to avoid a tick bite. Yeah. And I know that um, like some lawn care companies or, you know, professionals will do applications to turf areas. I mean, whether the grass, I mean, it's kind of up in the air. I get asked a lot about like, should I spray my lawn for ticks? And it really kind of depends, I think, on where their lawn is located, if they have a lot of woods around or if there's deer. I mean, I think from what I understand is like, sometimes they'll be on a deer and then they'll they'll fall off into the grass. And then if you walk through, they could climb up on you. Um, I mean, maybe I'm incorrect on that assumption, but I, I feel like the people that have had issues with ticks in their lawn are not people that live like, in the suburbs that don't have any woods around or there's no deer or small animals typically. Um, it's more around people that have, you know, heavily wooded areas nearby or areas that a lot of deer frequent. A deer and small rodents because the ticks are generally gonna hang out in the same area where lunch hangs out. You know, although, you know, deer, deer do walk through and ticks will drop off a deer. Um, but um, if, a, if an, adult female tick feeds on a deer and drops off. Well, first of all, she's got to finish digesting that meal and then um, lay some eggs. So it's not like an instantaneous thing. You know, there's still life processes that have to go on there. Mm -hmm. So, but you're right. It's all about proximity to places where other hosts may hang out. And, you know, if you have a brushy area, you can build, you can make a barrier between the brushy area and your lawn um, to, in order to just kind of keep, keep that other wildlife at bay. So and then, and then there's another, there are a number of things that you can do. Um, you know, you wanna keep wood piles away from the side of your house because who hangs out in wood piles? Well, sometimes little creatures like to run around and hang out in wood piles and those little creatures may have ticks on them, you know, and, um, uh, oh, you can always plant deer resistant plants to keep them out of your yard um, or use some type of fencing. So there's there's a number of options that one can do in order to 
um, make adjustments to the bigger environment around their house, hey, we have all these uh, on our website at Penn State Extension. Um, but then there's things you can do for your environment and then the things you can do for yourself. That's yeah, pretty so amazing. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say, um, it's amazing, like some areas of even the state, you know, some people say they're really bad. Some areas are not as good. I don't know the dynamics of, you know, how many offspring, you know, a tick has, but thousands, thousands. Oh my. Well, yeah. that may explain one time I remember being out in the woods and I'll never forget. It was actually in the state college area back when I was in college. And, uh, I just walked in, I had blue jeans on, um, I looked down at my jeans and I pulled like 54 ticks off me that were on me at one time. And like, I, I must've walked into like, I don't know if they have a nest or something, but I could not believe I literally was like, it's almost like that, like, like freaked me out. It was like, Oh my gosh, I gotta get out of the woods. <laughs> like I couldn't believe it. And I wouldn't have noticed though, if it was on camouflage clothing, like it's hard to see when it's on a dark background. So I was wearing blue jeans and I just, they were all over me. And, uh, but other times typically if I'm, if I'm out hunting or something, I'll get like one on me or two. Yeah. But... And that brings up another point. Like if you know, uh, you're going to be out in, in some place that might be risky for ticks. If you wear light colored colored clothing, it's easier to see them. Because I've do. been out collecting ticks, you know, wearing light colored clothing because I'm deliberately going where I know I'm going to find them so that I can get what I on my collection tools, but as well as pick them off myself. Yeah, I'm, I do the same thing. Like when I do scouting in the summertime or I go out, if I'm not in the act of actual hunting, I'll typically wear something light colored on purpose so I can see, I could see them. So I think that's a good idea for folks if they're, if they're thinking that they're going to be in an area to wear something light instead of dark. If you're, I mean, I literally everywhere I go in the woods, I've just, I constantly checking myself mm -hmm. and usually I get them before they, I'll see them on me before they actually get into me. Mm -hmm. Yep. Cause they're crawling around They're, you know, they're, they're going to find an easy place for them to attach. Um, and, and so then it's not instantaneous. We didn't really talk about like how they move, like, how do they get on to you? Like, do they jump? Do they, I mean, I, I know the answer to that, but like, how, how do they spread and how quickly can they move? Do they seek out something or do they just kind of sit and wait for something to pass by? Well, a lot of them sit and wait for something to pass by and they may be hanging out on the grass and waving their little legs so that whenever something passes by, their legs grab onto it. And that may be the leg of a, or their leg may have grabbed onto the side of their next meal um, as it, and so it carries them away as they go away and then they just crawl around and take a blood meal. Um, other other ticks may be more aggressive at hunting down um, their their prey, you know. So, um, but but there are other things that ticks key in on. We've used carbon dioxide, um, dry ice um, to to set up um, little traps that ticks are attracted to the dry ice, and so they'll they'll come to the they'll come to the container and that's how we've trapped them. So, and, so, and other compounds that may or may not, may attract ticks. Um, so there are a number of environmental cues that, that help ticks find their host in addition to where they've been located. And then the last question that I'll ask kind of on, on this topic or about this is like, if you get a tick on you, different people have different solutions to try to get them off like i've heard of people putting peanut butter on it i've heard people putting it's trying to put like alcohol and a cap on there some say to burn it off with hot tweezers i mean what what are what, what would you say is the best way no best way what jeff and i talked about earlier is just to get a pair of fine tweezers and carefully dislodge the tick and its mouth parts there are a number of devices one can find as well that um help you if you encounter ticks a lot um, that are that help to easily dislodge the tick and all of its mouth parts. So that's the best way to do it. All these other all these other ideas kind of sound weird because they are weird. <laughs> um, but you know, uh, people can be very creative, but probably the best way is just to carefully tease the tick out of there. Um, and we know that way is 
is works in its best. You're less likely to like force that tick to jam everything it's got into into the wound that it's created. So I'll remind our listeners that our guest today on the show is Amy Corman, um, extension educator, um, one of Tanner and my coworkers um, on the eastern side of the state. Amy is our um, resident entomologist that um, has spent lots and lots of time um, in her, um, as she put it, almost a quarter of a century, um, looking at ticks and tick-borne diseases um, Amy, I want to I want to change gears just a little bit because I know you that you also know a little bit about um, some West Nile virus and some mosquito um, issues. Can you talk about? I mean, because these are um, other things when we're outside um, as as turf grass professionals potentially are exposed to. Um, talk to me a little bit about West Nile virus. Well, we actually know a lot about West Nile virus because back, you know, in the turn of the century, we could watch it progress across the country in real time. So this is a mosquito-borne um, um, disease. It's a virus. Um, it can make people really, really, really sick, or some people just have mild symptoms. But it can also be devastating, like some tick-borne diseases, to um, other other animals in our lives. So this is, again, this is carried by mosquito uh, that will transmit the virus by mosquito bite. And we have a lot of it in Pennsylvania periodically, um, sort of cycles through, and it depends upon a number of environmental conditions. So um, we're never, we're never, um always need to be thinking and always need to be um, protecting ourselves. Um, I, I guess that's my message to our listeners is um, wherever you are, um, you know, and we we could do a, another whole episode and actually we're going to do another episode on protecting our skin from, from sun, um, from UV rays, um, protecting ourselves from that. Um, we have a, um, uh, an entomo or uh, an oncologist that's going to come on the show with us here in the next couple of weeks and uh, talk about protecting ourselves from the sun. So protect ourselves um, is, I guess, my message. Um, we're not going out in um, sandals and um, no shirts and, uh, you know, doing what we love to do. We've got to protect ourselves in addition to um, sun's rays also from the insects that um, we potentially are exposed to because um, there's lots of things that can I mean we could go on Amy could go on and on and on about some of the um, tick-borne insect or some of the, some of the tick-borne diseases um, we, we could turn this into into four episodes um, one on each of those different diseases um, so we're not going to do that though um, so I guess my message is protect 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 yourself, protect your family, protect your, protect your animals, or just be vigilant. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, um, Tanner, do you have anything else for Amy before we start to wrap this thing up? But, um, I don't know whether we told her or not, but um, we have this little tradition on the show that we call three strikes and you're out. I'm going to start to put that fear into her right now, Tanner. That's a baseball reference, right? Yes. It is. The only thing that I was going to ask or just to make sure people understand is about using pet materials that are for ticks. What what not to use them, correct? Yeah, unless you're a dog. Yeah. Don't wear a dog. Don't wear don't wear a tick collar. No, those are again, those are also considered pesticides and they are labeled for use on dogs and cats, not people. So um uh, use only EPA registered um, pesticides or repellents, read the label carefully and follow the label precisely. Um, and you'll be doing the best you can to protect yourself. We've said it on this show before, the law is the label, right? Or the label is the law. So, um, you know, follow it and, and don't use your, your pet's tick protection to protect yourself. So um, Amy, 
thank you so much for being on the show with us today. Really appreciate that. Um, great information, but we're not done. Um, we have this little um, thing that we do at the end of each of our shows, and it's called Three Strikes and You're Out, as I've already said. And it's where we ask three random questions, and we typically get three extremely random answers from our guests. But the first one is kind of a, I say it all the time, kind of a softball lob pitch for you, because it's the first one that we've asked all of our guests. And that is, what do you like to do when you're not working for Penn State Extension, not talking to the green industry, not talking about insects and bugs and mosquitoes and ticks? What are your hobbies? What do you like to do? I like hiking. I like biking. I like photography. That's what I'm doing. That's what I'm doing in my spare time. Wildlife, wildlife photography or things that stay still? Mostly insects, go figure. Or, or interesting um, features in ornamental landscapes, interesting plants and things like that. I had an interesting insect that I don't know what it was, but last night I went out to water my flowers and it was about 930. So it was pretty much dark. And there was a, I'm assuming some type of moth. It looked just like a hummingbird, but I'm pretty sure it wasn't a hummingbird that was feeding on some of my flowers. You know, there's a thing called a hummingbird moth. Oh, hey, I'm not an entomologist. (laughs) (laughs) Look up hummingbird moth. Yeah, uh, that would that would sound appropriate. Was that a question? Did I get that one right? No, that wasn't. Yeah, that wasn't a question for you. <laughs> I was just uh, making a comment. Darn it. But I do have a question for you. Mm-hmm. My question for you is not one that I've asked before, but this pertains to your expertise. And I know that, um, you know, you were in the military and I know that there are different places around the world. There are some very unique insects that can be problems. And my question is, is what it probably like a two part. What's the craziest insect that you've either had to educate about maybe out of this country um, and or have you seen something crazy or maybe deadly or something like that? OK, number one is an easy one. The craziest insect that I have ever had to educate anybody about is the spotted lanternfly. <laughs> it is the weirdest insect. Really, truly, I'm telling you. It just makes a liar out of us all the time. I'm not kidding. I've been doing this for 40 years. It is just one weird, just one weird critter. It is the most challenging insect ever. So that was an easy one. Um, and I will tell you, one of the one of the prettiest things I've ever seen was, and this is related to our tick discussion, was a rhinoceros tick. Hmm. It was, very fabulous looking. So it was really, I don't know that much about rhinoceros ticks, but I've seen them and it was kind of fabulous looking. <clears throat> so, um, so I thought that was unusual because it was. All right. I, I got to ask. <laughs> yeah. What makes a rhinoceros tick look so, I quote, fabulous? It's just the patterns on, on its back. You know, so it's just very ornate. It's a very ornate looking tick. So, so what kind of animal does a rhinoceros tick infect? An, a rhinoceros. I, I figured, but sometimes you, you just never know. Hey, Tanner. And it, may, it may attack other organisms as well, but I've only seen it on a rhinoceros. But just, uh, and Tanner, I just... Tanner, turn your head. I want to whisper something in your ear. <laughs> the entomologists, remember, weren't that smart when they named their insects. Hey, it sounds like ter- it sounds like turf people, though. Like, look at our diseases. Red thread, dollar spot, brown patch. I mean, boy, they really went on a leaf spot. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I I get it. I was the only thing I've heard. Well, I've heard of a lot of different insects, but um, people that have been over to the desert, um, like over in the Iraq, Qatar, that Saudi Arabia, people would talk about, was it camel spiders? Yeah. I think people say they're really big. And they are, they're really big. And, and uh, we could see them running around in our little hooches, but, but, but camel spiders, you know, they're, you know, like, like ticks, they're, um, they're not insects. So okay. they're, they're, they're another part of that arthropod group, but yeah, they were really funky looking. Um, 
but I think, um, yeah, it, it's just, I, I, I have great appreciation in looking at any of these arthropods. I'll tell you, I'll give you another, you, I'll give you this answer and you didn't ask me this question. Maybe you know the answer because you've heard me say it. The insect that I hate the most. Very relevant to your podcast. Guess, you guess. Wait, we're the hosts. We're supposed to be asking you the questions. So is it a turf insect? Yes. Like cutworms? No. A turf insect? Yes. Grubs? But what do grubs turn into? Oh, so like Japanese beetles or yes. like, yeah. Okay. I hate Japanese beetles. <laughs> <laughs> this year, I'm seeing a lot of the beetles that I've seen. Um, I believe a lot of them are oriental beetles. Yeah. Like lots of them. It seems like every year it's like different ones. And I, d I don't even know if this year I've seen an adult Japanese beetle. Yet, oh, I... well, come to my yard. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure I, I will or I just haven't been looking. But it seems like I've seen a lot of uh, Oriental beetles this year. Last week in my yard, they were everywhere. And I just I'm, that's like that's 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 the one number one insect that I really don't care for at all. Mm. All right. I just looked up camel spiders because I had never seen them. They're huge. Yeah. That yeah, I think the, that would be the scariest thing I've ever seen in my life. I think they get into like people's boots and things like that. That scorpions do the same thing too. Getting getting your boots and slippers and shoes and yeah. All right, let's change subjects. I'm starting okay. to get grossed out. All right. <laughs> that was that was strike two. Here comes strike three, Amy. It's not strike. I, I, I scored on both of those. Yeah, well, you you got hits. You you answered the question. That's all it's really about. Um, so the third one is not the typical question that I ask because our our listeners who listen to us every week are saying, "Oh, I know exactly what Fowler is going to ask," and I'm not going there with you. What I want to know is actually one that Tanner normally asks, and it is. I know that insects have taken you many, many places across this world um, from your time in the military um, and, and traveling around the United States. I want to know of all the places you visited, your favorite, pla your, your, your favorite place to go, one. And part two of that is your favorite food to eat in that location. Um, I've enjoyed everywhere I've gone. Um, that's good. So if it's, that's not if it's the answer. That's not going to be acceptable. Okay, but <laughs> if it's a location and food, it would have to be a tie between Bangkok, Thailand, and New Orleans, Louisiana. And what is your food there? Is there a specific food or just food in general in those two areas? Just just food in general in those two areas. That's fair. I've, I've never had Didn't anything. Louisiana food, good Thai food, yum. I mean, I, but most places I've been, there's always been something great about them. Yeah. What what, um, what makes a place great to you? Um, like I've been, in, I've been in 48 states. Uh, I've not been in the... I've been in all 48 continental states. I can tell you what makes those states great to me. But what what makes places great to you? Hmm. Well, the people. Yeah. Because most what I'm of these places, fascinated by. most of these places I've been, I'm working. I'm working with people with people um, with local people. So the people were great, um, and the scenery's great, and they've got really cool bugs. So, I knew that was. I knew you were going and, there. That's, and cool food. So come on. Yeah, for our listeners, um, it's the um, it's the food that takes me there. People, um, I know that doesn't surprise anybody that knows me, but um, that's that's definitely um, a draw. Tanner, how about you? Uh, I like having good food as well. I like I like no scenery. Kidding. I like the scenery, though. I, I'm I like I visited Alaska, and I thought that was one of the coolest places that I've ever been. Um, but the food up there wasn't 
and I don't know, knock on anyone in Alaska, but it wasn't like there was something there that was just fantastic. You know, You're not going back for reindeer steaks. I'll go back for, I'll go back to do other things there, but not for food. <laughs> okay. Fair they enough. had coffee stands like all over the place, like going, I went way up North and there's like coffee stands all over and everyone would say, Oh, you got to stop trying coffee. I thought that coffee up there was some of the most disgusting stuff I've ever drank. I mean, I like, I literally would, my, my wife and I got it once and I was like, this is terrible. <laughs> so we literally didn't drink coffee anymore on that trip because it was uh, awful. I mean, it was, it was terrible. I, I don't, there's it's no other words. Your Alaskan audience. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was just I'm, just, I'm just saying about their coffee. I mean, maybe I just had a bad place, but we had it like two different places and it was like, like super high octane, like, and I don't like my coffee like that. So maybe that's it. I'm sure some people like that, but to me coming from where we're at here, I mean, that's how I feel. Hey, speaking of that though, where, how I feel about pizza. I like pizza. I mean, a lot of people like pizza, but I'll go other places in the country and try their pizza. And for whatever reason, my local pizza places here, I think are better than anywhere else in the country. Now, I know that maybe there's some really specialty pies in like the cities and stuff like that. I haven't been everywhere, obviously, but like random pizza that you get from just a random pizza joint at places. Uh, it's okay, but it's nothing like what we have here. All right. Now that we have <laughs> taken our Alaskan listeners to bay about their coffee, I'm going to protect them and say, I've never had bad coffee. All coffee is good. You got to be kidding me. Now, you got to let me finish. <laughs> Just some coffee is better than others. There is some coffee that tastes disgusting, but it is better than not having it. Oh, that's debatable. I couldn't go there. There's, there, I've dumped coffee out before. I've actually dumped coffee out from national chain places that normally have good coffee. So maybe it was just a, just a fluke. But I cannot speak the English language in the morning before having coffee. So it doesn't matter how bad it is. It's coffee. Look, my wife. Hot coffee or cold coffee? Makes no difference. Okay makes no difference does your wife drink coffee oh absolutely my wife's a minister i drink church coffee all the time there is nothing worse in this world than <laughs> church coffee yeah so every coffee is good to you that's the thing but but all coffee is better than no coffee uh, in my previous life when i really worked for a living instead of just doing podcasts and walking around <laughs> athletic fields and golf courses and talking about how to grow grass I was a 4-H educator, and I spent lots of time taking kids around the, the state, visiting different places, and the kids knew not to speak to me before they handed me a cup of coffee. So they would, if I told them we had to be on the road by 6 a.m., by 5.30, they were pounding on the door of the hotel and handing me coffee. It didn't matter how bad it was, but I had to have coffee before we were getting in that van for me to put up with them for the day. Wow. Amy, you drink coffee every day? One cup, first thing in the morning. That's all I can do. I like it, but um, <clears throat> I just do one cup first thing. Because I made up for all my other coffee. I, I made up for decades worth of coffee drinking in my former lives. <clears throat> so when I go to the doctor, Amy, and they ask me if I consume coffee, and I say yes, and they say two or three two or three a day and i'm like what two or three cups or two or three pots <laughs> that's how oh. i start that conversation my wife tanner my wife can drink it right before she goes to bed and sleep sound oh i could do that too i can oh. i can do that yep we're we're, I we're never way off we're way off topic here that's we all right are, we are gone <laughs> no it's fun that's why we that's why we do this show amy corman Extension educator, Penn State Extension, thank you very much for being with us today, talking about tick-borne illnesses, talked a little bit about mosquitoes, talked about um, ways to protect ourselves, um, things that we can get from them. Um, I'm going to remind listeners um, that they can get a hold of Tanner and I at our email address. It's freshcutgrass at psu.edu. That's freshcutgrass at psu.edu. If you have episodes that you want us to uh, look for a, a 
a special guest to come in. We'd be happy to have to try to do that. Um, if you have questions for us or for any of our guests, we can funnel those questions to our guests um, if you use that email address. Tanner, it's been great having you again this week. I'm going to say thank you to Amy one more time, and then I'm going to let you wrap us up and take us home. Yep. Just want to say thanks to Amy again for her expertise. And Thanks uh, for having me. Absolutely. And we will talk to everyone next time.